Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. I am enormously excited about the series that we're starting this week. It's going to be five weeks long. We're not going to be here for five straight weeks. It's just going to be five weeks long. If you don't get that joke, ask your wife on the way home. She'll explain it to you. <laughs> and, um, but it is on worship, and this is something that God has reshaped in um, Nina and I and in our family and ministry for a very long time. It is something that we have, um, we have learned uh, on, hands-on and on the ground, kind of the hard way. And some of those things, you know, I heard it said that smart people learn from their own mistakes, you know, and uh, brilliant, wise people learn from other people's mistakes. Uh, I was smart on this one, not really brilliant and wise. So uh, hopefully you'll learn from our mistakes on this one as well as we get into worship. So one of our jobs as preachers and teachers in a Christian church is to present the gospel in the purest form. And when I mean the purest form, I don't mean... um, uh, the, the word pure means free from debris. So our goal is not to add a whole bunch of stuff that we want it to say or we wished it said or how to bend certain things into a point that I wish the, the, it would say to make the message be like zing. You know what I mean? Like, like hit it out of the ballpark and be like people walk out and be like, that's good. Um, we got to try to pull all of that stuff out of it. And we got to try to just present what the word tells you without trying to superimpose what we want it to say on top of it. We just got to take what it says. Make sense? So um, the more we spend time in God's word as his people, as a church and as individuals, uh, the more we'll see the influence of our culture and the environment around us on us and the church. And so our goal is to put our imprint on the culture But unfortunately, that's kind of been the other way around. The culture has been putting its imprint on us and the church. So one of the reasons that we're going to go back to Scripture when we're trying to figure out what's right and wrong is that the first line of your notes is this. A major benefit of Scripture is it corrects us. It corrects us. Where do I get that from? Glad you asked. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God, is useful to teach us, what is true, and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Now, our culture can influence us to incorrectly believe that correction, next on your notes there, that correction always equals punishment. That correction always equals punishment. Now, this is incorrect. Correction doesn't always mean punishment. Um, if you grew up in the South in Ron Poole's house, my dad's house, uh, correction, uh, went really good with punishment because that's what happened. The little kid was, you know, me with the hyper one bouncing around, telling the stories and stuff, you know, got his rear end swatted when he wasn't acting right. You know what I mean? And so I kind of drew that, that correlation between if I'm getting corrected, I'm in trouble and there's somebody bringing down the hammer on me, even in our in our government, when we talk about prisons and jails and stuff, we call it the, the, the Department of Corrections. So we kind of imply that correction means punishment. But this word here in this, in this passage of Scripture, this in the original language, this word correction, 
Um, I wrote it in your notes because I'm going to butcher it, man. If you are a Greek person, please help me after the service. But I think it's uh, a panorthoros, whatever. Um, uh, the, so the definition of this hard word, that's what we'll say, is um, the next line in your notes, restoration to an upright or right state. So in this scripture, this word is basically, it has nothing to do with punishment. It has to do with restoration of something that's right. This is the only place in the New Testament this word is used. This word correction is only used in this one place to where it would bring us back into a right understanding. So, next line in your notes, Scripture can restore our thinking and understanding into an upright state. When it says it corrects us, it means Scripture can restore our thinking and understanding into an upright state. Now, everybody in this room, I'm sure, has a cell phone or wish they did. Huh? See the little ones? Yeah, they're like, I wish I had one. Um, uh, so, or if you've ever used your parents' cell phone, I'm sure that when you sent a text or started writing, you've run into a feature that's on almost every phone called autocorrect, right? This is very beneficial unless it guesses wrong, right? If you have a wife named Nina, N-I-N-A, and you try to type her, and it autocorrects it every time to the word nine, N-I-N-E, because it doesn't recognize Nina, it recognizes nine, right? So it's not always right. We don't have that problem with scripture. But if you take out your phone, and you're texting somebody, or you're writing something, and the autocorrect shifts the spelling to the right word, what do you do? Oh, cool, I don't have to go back and deal with that. You don't go, it corrected me. Oh my gosh, it corrected me, I'm terrible. No, you go, oh, thank you. This is the role of scripture. If we can take away the context of it's a God who's like trying to beat us down or bring the hammer on us, or this word is something that's supposed to be, you know, knocking us back into line and punching us in the jaw and kicking our tail back into get in line, son. Get away from that and realize he's just trying to restore what's right. He's trying to, the, the scripture is correcting us. It's bringing us lovingly into a way of being upright. So, <clears throat> We're going to depend on Scripture in all of our messages, but even in this series, a lot. We're going to depend on Scripture to correct our potential wrong view of worship. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the Scripture, and we're going to say, let's take away all the things that we think worship is and look at the Scripture and find out if what we think is right. Now, there's a, a, a popular Christian phrase, next line in your notes, that I'm sure you've heard. And if you haven't, I'm happy to introduce it to you today, but I'm sure most of you have heard it. Is worship is a lifestyle. Anybody ever heard this before? Any former church people ever heard this before? Yeah, I see a bunch of nods. Thank you for raising your hand and not leaving me hanging. I appreciate it. <coughs> you can come back every week. Um, so we're everybody can come back every week. Let me just make that clear. Um, worship is a lifestyle. Now, let me... I, I, it's so important, something I want to put in our hands as a congregation and as believers. I want to take a side uh, and aside from the message. And I even put it in the notes. I want to put in everybody's hand the tool of understanding, and it is a question. Okay? That question is, what does that mean? If you listen to a message, a sermon from a guy or, or a lady, doesn't matter who it is, a preacher, teacher, evangelist, anyone... And they say something, 
and you go, mmm, like I used to do, you know, when people would say something good, I'll go, mmm, that's good. But then five seconds later, I would go, I don't even know what that means, but it just sounded good, you know, like they, people who put words together really well, you go, ooh, I got the goose pimples, you know what I mean, like the chicken skin or whatever you call it, <clears throat> and you go, man, that's good, and you leave there and go, what does that even mean? I want all of us, if we don't understand something, to not be afraid to pull out our tool of understanding here and go, what does that mean? And when you hear phrases like worship is a lifestyle, ask the question, what does that mean? I, as a young church kid, never asked that question. I just went on my limited knowledge and thought, you know what? Whenever I go to church, they say, stand for worship. And we sang songs. So I immediately went, oh, worship is singing songs. And so if they're telling me I have to live a lifestyle of worship, I have to sing these songs all stinking day. Oh, I'm already getting in trouble for talking too much, and now i got to sing a bunch. I can't sing these around my dad too often or too loud when he gets home from work. You know what I mean? So I would get up in the morning, you know, little, you know, younger kid, get up out of bed, be like, I wish I could go back to sleep and not go to school. I am a C. I am a C-H. I am a C-H-R-I-S-D. Right? Like all those songs you learned as a kid. <clears throat> and I would go, this is what I'm supposed to be doing because I'm a rule follower, right? I have to live the lifestyle of worship. Worship is these songs. And I connected all these dots, right? And so, you know, uh oh, this is really going to see who the old folks are in the room, all right? So I go and brush my teeth. And I had a song for my teeth. I'd start celebrate jesus celebrate na 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 oh nobody did it with me none of you know that song i'm the old one in the room okay <clears throat> so i would i would think that's kind of what worship is in, in kind of a less humorous way most people kind of have the same idea right they come to church and they start with worship and then it goes to preaching and then we have the awkward handshake in the middle that no one likes. And then, you know, we pray and leave, right? So it's a very common mis uh, misconception that worship is the songs we sing in the church. So when we go back to scripture and I would read scripture and I would read all these times where all these people worshiped in the Bible, I'd be like, these fools did not stop singing at all. Because I've seen worship everywhere and they just keep singing and singing if that's kind of what my correlation was, right? So... What we're going to have to do is we're going to have to set aside any preconceived notion of what worship is and go back to the scripture and ask God and his word to define it for us. So now the Bible was written in three main languages. Two primarily and one a little bit. There are the next lines on your notes. Ready? First one's Hebrew. Most of the Old Testament's in Hebrew. Greek is the second one. Most of the New Testament was written in Greek. And there's little slivers in the Old Testament that also are written in Aramaic. A-R-A-M-A-I-C. Aramaic. Now, these languages are far more descriptive than our English language. And I've used this um, illustration before, but I want to bring it up again as a reminder for us. In our English language, we use the same word for different things, right? I love your flip-flops or I love my wife. Same word to completely different connotations. These older languages that, um, that the Bible was written in, they don't have this problem because they have a specific word for loving a thing 
a specific word for loving a spouse, a specific word for loving God, and a specific word for loving like your brothers and sisters and your fellow man. Our language uses just one word for all of these different words that we would translate love. You follow me? This is going to become more complex because the next line in your notes, the Bible uses 16, 16 different words for our one translated English word of worship. So I considered putting all these words on your notes, but if you don't care about Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic, it looks like I just went like this on the keyboard and just all the letters just popped out is what it looks like all the words, right? Because you're not used to what they look like. So if you want them, I'll be happy to email them to you. But I went ahead and dove into all these words. And if you do the research, you do the study of what all these words mean, they basically fall into three categories. Today, we're only going to deal with the first one. And we're dealing with it first because I believe it is one of the most important that we have to grasp when we talk about worship. The first category that we're going to talk about tonight, the only category we're going to talk about tonight, but it's the first one, is, next on your notes, submission. Submission. S-U-B-M-I-S-S-I-O-N. Submission. During my study, I got real interested, and I went and found the first time the word worship in the Bible was used. And next line in your notes, the first time it's mentioned is in the story of Abraham and Isaac. I didn't realize this, but it was used in the story of Abraham and Isaac. I'm sure if you've grown up in church, you've heard the story of Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham and Sarah, they were very old, about 100 years old. When God told them they're going to have a child, Sarah went, <laughs> right, I'm 100, I'm not having no child. And so they tried to um, fulfill God's promise another way. It didn't work. God said, don't try to do my thing your way. It's another message for another day. But he actually blesses that marriage, that union, and they have a child, and it's Isaac. Abraham is in love with this boy. It's his only son. He has just got his heart. If you have children, you know what I'm talking about. It's just that thing you can't explain that they won't know until you, they have kids, you know what I mean? Then they're going to look at you and go, this is how you feel about me? And it just kind of loops in a whole another, another level of understanding love for somebody. So in Genesis chapter 22, it's there in your notes. We're going to read it together, verses 1 through 5. God decides he's going to put Abraham to a test, okay? Let's read it together. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son. Yes, Isaac, in case you were wondering. It's your only son, but yeah, Isaac, that one, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early, saddled his donkey, and took two of his servants with him along with his son Isaac. I find it really interesting that nowhere in here did he tell his wife where he was going. That's just a side note I noticed. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire, for a burnt offering, and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, 
<coughs> excuse me, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little further and we will worship there and then we will come right back. Here I am with my old view of worship, singing these songs. I'm like, he's going to go up that mountain and sing some songs and come back? This is not what this scripture is saying. So I looked into this word worship, and it's one of the main words for worship in the Old Testament, and it's shakah. And I put the um, phonetic sound in it, sounding it out for you there in your notes too. Shaw, S-H-A-W. Kaw, K-H-A-W, shakah. It's the Hebrew word. And here's the definitions for him. The next line in your notes. Shakah means to bow down or prostrate oneself. If you're an old school hip-hop guy, you'll like the bow down reference, right? The, the, uh, the other word that's almost the exact same definition is the Aramaic word segid, which means to prostrate oneself or to physically kneel or bow down. So if you look at scripture through our Western American mind, you're not really going to understand the significance of bowing down. Most of the times when we talk about in our culture about kneeling down, it's a guy getting on one knee, begging the girl he loves to marry him, right? Get down on one knee and I'm, I'm here. This is kind of, the, this is kind of the, the most popular way we see kneeling in our culture. There's not a lot of kneeling that goes on. It wasn't in my house either because my mom said, you only got one set of knees, boy. Get up off them. You know, you're going to want them when you get older, right? But in the biblical times, physically kneeling or prostrating or laying down, face down, uh, oneself in front of someone, the next line of your notes, meant you were submitting to the one you were bowing down to. So if you shakad or you knelt down, you are saying that whatever you're kneeling down to is what you're submitting to. You may, may begin throughout the week or even now to start remembering other Bible stories from the past that you may have learned in church or children's church or whatever earlier in your life where there were these kings of other nations who would make idols to themselves, stand them up in front of everyone, and they would say, worship. And that worship is the same word, shalkah. Kneel down to me. Submit to me. And so when you see in, the, in Scripture somebody kneeling down, they're acknowledging their superiority to them. They're acknowledging the superiority of the person they're kneeling down to, and they're submitting to their desires, their control, and their power, and their way of thinking. One important way we worship is by submitting. That's the next line in your notes. Submitting to God. I'm sure many of you in this room uh, remember the story of David and Bathsheba. David was, uh, if you read the scripture, the, the Bible says David wasn't where he was supposed to be, which is another message for another day. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. During a time of war, he went home to kind of catch a breather. 
took a power nap and walked out on his walked out on his balcony and looked over and saw Bathsheba off in the distance taking a bath on the roof. And instead of doing what he should have done, which is close them curtains and walk his behind back in the room, he sat there and watched her. And his desire for her, a woman who wasn't his wife, rose up and he sent a soldier and said, you know what? Go get that girl and bring her here. She's married to a man named Uriah, who is one of the nation of Israel's and King David's greatest soldiers. He forgets all of that, loses his mind, brings that girl into his house, and he sleeps with her. Sends her back home. All good. Except... Six to eight weeks later, word comes back to him. Uh, my husband's in a, been at war for months on end, and he brought me to the palace, and our little encounter has now produced a child. I'm pregnant. So what does David do? Confess his sin? Own up to what he's done wrong? Nah. He does what any sensible man would do. He says, time to cover this sucker up. So he goes and gets Uriah and brings him back from the, from the, from the, uh, from the, the war and says, hey, man, you've been working hard. I'm going to give you a chance. Just kind of get some R&R. Go back home here to your wife, figuring that you've been away for a long time and, you know, they would come together. And he would just be like, congratulations, you have a child, and walk away scot-free. But Uriah says, I can't go home and rest when my brothers and my soldiers are out in the field. So he sleeps at the palace with the king's guards and never went home. Next morning, David rolls in. What's up, my man? How'd you like your night at home? Well, well sir, I didn't go home. Wait, what? No, I slept here with these guys because it's wrong of me to go home when my soldiers are in the field. So what's David do? Instead of honoring and realizing his plan doesn't work, try again. Well, before I send you back, Uriah, to the field, here's what I'm going to do. You're going to stay here one more night, and we're going to have a big old feast, and I want you to be here as a part of it. And David, being the man of strength and honor and integrity that he was, gets Uriah drunk, like off his rocker, drunk, and thinks, this is going to do it. Even if he don't want to, he's inebriated. He's going to go back home and see his wife, and they're going to just be so happy to see each other. Go on back home, Uriah. But Uriah's character is stronger than wine, and he displays the integrity that the king should have displayed. He doesn't go home. Stays at the palace again, refuses to go. David's realizing this man is not going to go home. So instead of stopping there and repenting, David does one more thing that's even worse. Sends Uriah back to the battle and says, tells the general, hey, put Uriah in the heaviest part of the battle. 
where it's raging the most, the, the, the fighting is the most intense. Put him there with a the platoon, and then after he's there, bring the platoon back, but don't nobody tell Uriah, leave him hanging by himself and let the enemy overwhelm him because David couldn't bear to put him to death by himself, so he rolled him out there to kill him indirectly. They do that. Uriah is killed. Word comes back from a messenger to David. One of your top soldiers has been killed. And instead of asking questions, what is this? Why did this happen? You know, uh, I, mourning the loss of such a great man. You know what David's response was? Things like this happen in war. Go back and tell the general, the leader of the army, double the forces and go in there and win the battle. And then when Bathsheba is widowed, he picks her up and brings her to the house, makes her his wife. All good. Cover up done. We're gold. There's only a handful of people that know about all this. We just got to kind of keep them under wraps and I'll ship them off somewhere else or they won't have to really let me know and you know let anybody know what I did but the problem when man covers something up is that God sees underneath all the intentions all the actions to what's really going on God sends his prophet Nathan says uh, go tell David I know everything that's been going on and Nathan approaches David tells him Jig is up, man. God knows and I know exactly what you did. It's terrible. 2 Samuel 12, verses 13 is where we pick up that story. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes. No joke, bro. He didn't say that, but that would have been me. But the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. After Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and lay on the, all night on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. Then on the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill, they said. What drastic thing will he do when we tell him the child is dead? When David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on his lotions or anointed himself, and changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and worshipped the Lord. After that, he returned to the palace and was served food and ate. That word worship right there is the same word Shalkah that we read earlier. 
I used to have a problem trying to figure out how David would go to the temple after his child is dead and start singing. The joy of the Lord is my strength. How does that work? And then I realized what he was doing was not going there to sing. He realized he had followed his own direction and not the Lord's. And he went back to the point of making things right and Shakah submitted to God. Had enough of doing it my way. It's time for me to worship, submit to what God wants. After that correction in his life, after coming back into submission to Almighty God who he was serving and representing, he wrote a famous song that, or a famous psalm that a song I grew up as a kid was based off. Create in me a clean heart, oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, O oh Lord. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me. As I sat and read that story and realized, man, that song about having a pure heart renewing things that were broken came after one of the most despicable, hideous acts in King David's life. It changed the way I read those words. It's not just, oh, somebody wrote some song to God and that was good. No. The heart of the man who said, I need to submit again to God is on full display in those words. There's something I want every one of us to remember. It's a two-word phrase, and it's the next line in your notes, and it's this. Everyone worships. Everyone worships. But, next line in your notes, we get to choose who or what we worship. We get to choose who or what we worship. So here's David, knowing what's right, ignoring what's right, because he wanted Bathsheba. When we ignore what God wants and we do what we want, 
we are submitting to our selfish desires. Or in other words, next line in your notes, we are worshiping ourself. When the Lord showed me that, that was a heavy one for me. When I submit to what I want above what God wants, when I go after what I desire more than what God desires, when those things are opposite, I am not worshiping Him, I am worshiping me. And I know what Matt is really capable of. I know how gross and infected my heart can be without him. There is no way in the world anyone, including me, should submit to me. I am the one that needs to submit to God. primary definition of worship in the Old Testament was submission to God. And if that's the case, then it fundamentally changes our understanding of worship. When we go to Scripture, it, does, it just doesn't tell us what the definition is. It also, when we get clarity understanding, we realize what worship is not. Next line in your notes. Worship is not the songs we sing in a church service. Worship is not the songs we sing in a church service. And number two, worship is not a feeling. This is really important. In a hyper-emotional culture, this is very important. Very important to understand. Have you ever walked out of a church service and heard somebody say, well, we've traveled a lot doing worship and you know, all over the country, so we've heard quite a few people say this. So I'm sure you've probably heard something similar to this as well. They walk out and go, I just didn't really feel it in worship today. Maybe we have been guilty of saying that. I have, especially in my younger days. I didn't really... The songs were good, and it was good, but I just didn't feel it today. I just didn't have that, uh, that, I don't know, that thing that I want, that, whew. So, what? If I have to feel something when the songs are sung to confirm whether I have worshipped or not, then we are actually worshiping the feeling and not the God who the worship is focused on. So next line in your notes. We would actually be worshiping the feeling. I am not telling you, I am not saying to you that when you have an emotional response, it's bad. It is not it cannot be the priority. 
it cannot be the desired outcome of if you have to cry, if you have to feel that, oh, if you have to feel, I'm not, if you feel it, great. But on the times that you don't or the times that we don't or the times that I don't, it doesn't matter because our goal is not to pursue the feeling. Our goal is submission to him. This rocked my view of what worship was. It's not wrong that worship invokes the emotion, but worship is not the emotion. So next time in your notes, why do we sing? To express our heart of submission to God. We sing because we have placed our life in the hands of the master and we have submitted, we have shakar, we have worshipped him. Last on your notes, true biblical worship is submission to God. We have a real problem with this in our culture because what I saw in the life of David, I see a lot in our culture. Um, David was a king. He was in charge of his life. He had freedom to come and go as he pleased. You couldn't tell him what to do. And our culture has a problem with telling others, don't tell me what to do. The arrogance of our culture seems to be at an all-time high. But let me let the culture off the hook for a second and go, how arrogant was I? In the worst parts of my life, my, I had a, my way of saying it was, you can't tell me nothing. Favorite song from an artist who will remain unnamed at the moment, but I listened to his song all the time. And the line, the hook over and over was, you can't tell me nothing. You can't tell me nothing. And my friends, you couldn't tell me nothing. That statement mirrors the position of David's heart. I'll do what I want. I'll stay here and look at that girl if I want to. I will take what I want. If I can get it, she's in. We're all good. I don't care. You can't tell. If we're doing that, we're submitting to us and worshiping a false idol of self. My question to us today What have we submitted to? What should we repent of submitting to? 
and where should our worship, our shaka, our submission be focused? If you're in this room and you go, I'm struggling with something, Matt. I've been dealing with it for a while. I'm, you're in good company because all of us have. If you are somebody who goes, I never really thought about that, but I do every time what I want, not really what the Lord wants, I invite you to worship. I invite you to truly worship the King. How do you live a lifestyle of worship? Step number one is submit to God. Submit yourself, therefore, to the mighty hand of God. He will raise you up in due time. Submission is exampled for us all over Scripture. And the invitation and the challenge for us is, I got to stop worshiping anything else and bring my life into a place of worship to the Almighty. If you can understand and grasp that, it will change how you look at everything you do in your life. If you are tempted to go down this road and you obey the word of God and go down this road, you have worshipped him. If you are invited to do something that is anti what his scripture has laid out as acceptable for us as Christians to have a condition in your heart grow of jealousy, anger, envy, strife, whatever it is, and you reject that and say, no, God, I'm going to submit my life to you, then you have actually lived worship. And your lifestyle will reflect submission to him, and you will have lived worship. Any opportunity you have to submit to him is an act of worship. No music required.